Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Today, we begin an extended series on Calvinism and Arminianism. For those of you not familiar, Calvinism, named after John Calvin, who died in 1564, holds that God sovereignly chooses and effectually saves all whom he decides to save based on his predestined will, whereas Arminianism, named after Jacobus Arminius, who died in 1609, asserts that people freely choose to accept or reject the gospel message that God graciously offers to all. So these are two doctrines on either side of the subject of salvation. And on the one side, God chooses who will be saved, and they cannot resist his will, and they will become saved. And on the other side, people have freedom of choice, sometimes called libertarian free will, to either choose or reject God. So the typical breakdown for any discussion on Calvinism involves five major points summarized by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. In this episode, we begin by laying down the framework for future discussions. In fact, we're going to have an episode on each one of those five points of Calvinism. Let me introduce the debaters. Holding to the Arminian position is Jacob Rohr, a graduate of the Atlanta Bible College. At the time of this recording, he served as the lead worship pastor of my church, Living Hope Community Church in Latham, New York. Now he serves as the assistant pastor and worship leader at Lawrenceville Church of God in Springfield, Ohio. On the Calvinist side, Blake Courtright graduated from Regent University in Virginia. He serves in missions work to the Democratic Republic of the Congo and leads worship occasionally at Living Hope Community Church in Latham, New York. Courtright also wrote and directed The 46ers, a documentary about the high peaks in the Adirondacks of New York State. I, Sean Finnegan, am the moderator. I'm the associate pastor at Living Hope Community Church. I'm very excited to facilitate this discussion. Essentially, our aim here in this episode is just simply to discuss the origins of Calvinism and Arminianism and talk a little bit about what they both stand for and how to engage in meaningful doctrinal disagreement, what I like to call constructive disagreement. And so this is a real opportunity for you as a listener to hear the other side, whatever position you hold to. This series is going to be an excellent opportunity to sharpen your sword, so to speak. In other words, to be challenged in your own beliefs and either to switch sides or to further solidify your own position. And, th- and this is an important subject, so I hope you will approach this with an open mind. We're going to go ahead and release episodes for this, all five points of Calvinism, each Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. So stay tuned for future episodes. Here now is 137, Calvinism versus Arminianism, Part 1, Introduction. Hey everyone, today we are beginning an exciting new series on 
Calvinism and Arminianism and seeing how these two belief systems line up with scripture, with logic, with experience, with practical concerns. So to begin, I want to introduce my two guests who are on opposite sides of the table. One is Jacob Rohr, who is representing the Arminian side, and Blake Courtright representing the Calvinist side. And what we thought we'd do today is begin laying some groundwork, explaining what our overall approach is, how we're going to continue in this subject, and see how things are going to turn out later. So, Blake, how should we get started? What do you think? <laughs> well, I was an Arminian for most of my life, so this isn't something that's like foreign to me. I found I had a lot of hostility to the Calvinist view based on preconceptions, and that may not be true of everybody. That was just my own experience. I thought uh, very negatively. I had a lot of incorrect attitudes. And I also know, now that I lean into Calvinism, there are some Calvinists who have a lot of the same sort of attitudes towards Arminians. The interesting thing is a lot of what we are arguing over, there's a, there's a lot of significance to this topic of predestination and free will. It's an emotional topic. It's something that is very important for our faith and practice. Uh, and I do want to say at the outset that I don't think that it's a salvation issue to believe one way or the other. Right. Although we are talking about the subject of <laughs> salvation. salvation. Ironically, yeah, yeah the, so the, the theological view or the soteriology being the, the theology of salvation, I don't think where you fall on it is a salvation issue, mm-hmm. um, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian. Right. I know plenty of saved people in both camps. So that I just wanted to spell that at the outset. Okay. And I also think we can start by looking at the things we agree upon because there's a lot more common ground than I think most people understand. Mm-hmm. And then that can help us to remove this us versus them mentality on both sides. Because, again, we tend to get into our camps and we say those Arminians or those Calvinists. And uh, it's fruitful to break some of that down. Well, before we do that, let's talk about your own background, your own history. So maybe, Jacob, you would just share your own perspective growing up and at Bible college and reading you've done since then. I mean, have you always come from more of a free will perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Pretty much my whole <clears throat> Christian experience so far has been of a Arminian perspective, whether I've been conscious of that or not. Uh, I really didn't get acquainted with it or at least like have exposure to it until I got to college. In my experience, it was something that we didn't really talk about or teach, but it was just something that you don't believe in and that other people who believe in Calvinism are obviously wrong. And uh, so it sounds it, silly when you say it. Huh? Yeah. 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 So <laughs> it, it really wasn't given its fair shake. I don't know at one point in college, but at some point I decided that I can't really reject Calvinism because I've never studied it mm-hmm. and, I, and I've never looked at it from their position. And I think to really reject something as untrue or to dismiss it, you really have to look at it from the whole picture. And also my experience has been that in reaction to against Calvinism, people become very emotional and that's what I want to avoid in this five part series is emotion because emotion has a place, a time and a place, but it's not here and it's not now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Emotion doesn't win. It shouldn't win people over. It should be what the Bible teaches. Right. We should compare the reasons for either system of thought against each other, against scripture, against logic, Mm -hmm. Uh, against whether or not the system is livable, and then see how they measure up. What class were you referring to before? Were you talking about systematic theology when you first encountered it? 
Were there debates on this in your class? There were debate opportunities. I was part of three or four debates, but the, um, the results were never about this topic. Oh, okay. And so I've never actually, uh, before, right now, before just recently, maybe in the last <clears throat> last year, have I really sat down and really given it thought and looked at it. Okay. And I'd like to be a more informed, educated Christian, so that's that's part of why I'm sitting here. Okay. And Blake, what about you? So I grew up in a very Arminian background, obviously, being pastor's kid here, and I didn't really think anything about it. I mean, I, didn't, I don't think that I consciously harbored any negative thought towards Calvinists or Calvinism, but I think there was a subconscious understanding of us versus them on that particular topic, uh, as tends to happen. I mean, doctrine does, by its very nature, divide us. That's why there's so many denominations and subdenominations of Christianity. Uh, we get very nuanced. You know, is it transubstantiation? Or is it, you know, like people, people have disagreements over these tiny little things, uh, and big things like Calvinism and Arminianism. And I went to college at Regent University for four years, which is a Christian school. So naturally, in the course of the, the general electives we had to do there, we got in, into the topic. And I had friends who were Calvinists. Most of them were Presbyterian. Uh, I also had friends who were Pentecostal and very, very charismatic. And I tended to be a little bit more on the charismatic side of things when I was at college, just because I had never really experienced that kind of culture, but I was always cautious of it because I thought some of what was going on was not aligning with scripture, which was always, I mean, that's always our, our ethos, our perspective here that I grew up with was, what does the Bible say? And that's ultimately been the, the authority for all this is, well, let's come back, let's search the scriptures and compare what I'm presupposing to what God's word teaches. And uh, I remember my freshman year in philosophy class, we had to write a paper on this topic, and I ended up coming down on the, the term of compatibilism, which was basically that I can't accept full determinism and I can't accept full libertarian free will because both are, are absurdities, so thereby it must be some mysterious blend of the two, and I don't know what that is. And I just kind of left it at that for about four years. And then over the last two, three years, I started researching the topic again. When I moved to the Adirondacks, I spent a lot of time listening to audiobooks, so that went from the likes of John Eldridge, who's Borders on Open Theism, and Richard Foster over to N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis and some of those kind of robust, popular Christian thinkers into someone very convicting like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Cost of Discipleship. And that did leave an impression on me. Like the point that he was thrusting at is we can't fulfill the requirement of the law and we need the same. Like he was just, I, I don't even think that he was a Calvinist. He might have been, but I don't think so. But he was stressing the need of a savior in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. Uh, and that got me to go a little deeper into it. And so what I'm presenting is an amalgam of stuff I've learned from the likes of uh, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Jonathan Edwards, of course, Calvin, Luther. But that said, I don't hold any brief for human tradition, or uh, nor would I claim, nor would anybody, I don't think, claim that any of these men uh, individually or collectively are infallible, or that their opinions are simply ways that historically Christians have, have addressed this issue, so I may reference them throughout the course. But again, I hold they are not authorities as opposed to the scripture is the only authority, like the yeah. Protestant Reformation, the sola scriptura. And also a phrase that I've heard used is uh, toda scriptura, which is not only that we have scripture alone, but all of scripture. Like it says, the scripture uh, in Second Timothy is God-breathed or inspired of God. Like it it's all profitable. So any apparent contradictions, such as predestination and free will, there must be some way to address that because the scripture will reveal that to us uh, from, from Genesis to Revelation. It's, and that's a belief that I hold very strongly, that scripture yeah, yeah. is, all of it is profitable. 
Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that mindset. I think it's an easy task to break off one book of the Bible and say, this is the theology of, say, the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. and, not, and do that in isolation to the rest of Scripture. I think that's, I think that's cheap and easy. Mm-hmm. What's more difficult, what's more grandiose, what's more impressive is, is to work it in together mm-hmm. in a, a harmonizing sense with the theology that came before it and came after it mm-hmm. and see where it, where it falls. So for me, you're talking about biblical theology, which, which I'm a big fan of. That's an important point of view to, to bring to bear here, that you're not putting your theology first mm-hmm. and then saying, all right, let's see how we can make Scripture fit into this, right. shoehorn it in, even if it is a little awkward. So uh, sometimes the way people do that is they will pick a translation for each difficult verse <laughs> that is friendliest to their... Oh. Presupposition, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're not we're not interested in that. I mean, again, no. that's to me that's quick and easy. That's mm-hmm. not really the task of theology. Mm-hmm. Um, for, uh, by the way, for many years, theology uh, was considered the queen of the sciences. Yeah. yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't get to be the queen if you're uh, easy to get with. Okay. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, yeah. what we want to do is is hold scripture up in its proper place in this authoritative role. And then um, sit under the text in the sense that if it disagrees with our theology, then mm-hmm. we change our theology. We don't change the scripture. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, we do need to try to figure it out and think about it. And I think this kind of discussion, some people might say, is a little too heady, too pedantic, too divisive, whatever. And therefore, we should just focus on. Jesus is the good shepherd, or God loves me, or something very basic and easy to comprehend. But I I, I don't agree with that. I I think the way more of a Jewish perspective would be that even in studying Scripture, we worship God. Mm. And that this this can be a God-honoring conversation here as we go forward and we start to get into total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints, these characterized so-called topics of Calvinism, that we would be able to see both sides of it and have a constructive interchange here between you two. And that's really what I'm looking for is not that you're always like complimenting each other in a disingenuous sense uh, and you never make any points. That's not what I'm talking about, but that you would be honest with what you see, how you interpret scripture, Mm -hmm. but then always keep respect in play. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to this. Jacob, you're going to say something? Yeah, yeah, I just have one last thought. I think another reason this, not just this topic in general, but uh, theological discussions are important is because if the average layperson or believer, just like you said, you know, why can't we just talk about Jesus loves me or how God loves the world or how I'm supposed to obey Jesus? The problem with that is, is that if we are not at least exposed to the different theological systems out there. We don't realize it, but depending on what books we read, they're all coming from different traditions and they all have a slanted view. And so being aware of these issues will help you recognize that. We don't have to know every single detail about every theological position and system, but just having an awareness and a perception so that we are enlightened in some sense and that we're not totally in the dark. I agree with that. Let's talk about the word Calvinism. And I was uh, talking to to Blake beforehand, and he was reminding me of the genetic fallacy 
talk about that a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. if you say you're a Calvinist, that means you support everything John Calvin ever did, right? <laughs> no, no, no. So I think that uh, it's a philosophical and a logical fallacy to discredit or to completely absorb something that somebody says or articulates on the basis of actions they've taken. So we can look back at any number, any Christian thinker, and we can point to areas where they failed, where they sinned, where they sometimes did very terrible things. And we can say, well, that utterly discredits any theological input they've had. But then we're committing a fallacy there, a logical fallacy, where we're associating their human error uh, with their thought. And that's not something that we want to do on either side. And also, I would add that I think Calvinism is a bit of a misnomer. It's kind of a historical fluke that it ends up being called that, because in a little historic survey I want to do, uh, we'll see that Calvin was certainly not the first theologian to talk about predestination, and nor was he even the loudest in history, uh, even among the Reformers, to talk about it. So I think that that is significant. But the term tends to get people emotional and upset because they instantly jump to conclusions about what you're saying. And uh, that's what we want to try to avoid on both sides, as well as the Arminian position to, to not jump into conclusions about what you're saying. Yep. Um, right. And uh, in particular, a lot of folks are justifiably upset at John Calvin, even though he's been dead for 500 years. <laughs> They're upset because of uh, how he treated Michael Servetus. Mm, yes. And the uh, miscarriage of justice there and the execution of really somebody whose whose greatest crime was thinking differently. He, it's not like he acted in a way that hurt other people or that broke established laws, other than he did not accept a particular view of God that Calvin and many others had. So there's, among some folks, a repulsion mm-hmm. to the very name Calvin, but this is that genetic fallacy mm-hmm. rearing his ugly head. Or, on the other hand, you have... Arminius, who, if you study him, he has a tragic life. He mm-hmm. does. And, and he does evidence some courage at one point where the plague comes into town and he chooses to stay mm-hmm. and to care for the sick and to minister. And he, he makes it through that. And, and so you say, okay, well, then I'm going to be an Arminian because Arminius was such a great guy. And he died in such a tragic way. And I don't like Calvin because he was so stern and, and iron-fisted, and he took over the city, and he would, he would fine you if you laughed during the church service. Yeah. Like, but th- those are both versions of the genetic fallacy. And yeah, so uh, they're, they're, they're just invalid ways to make decisions about what you believe. Mm-hmm. You can find horrible people that believe in libertarian free will. You can find horrible people that believe in classic double predestination. Mm-hmm. And you can find great people on, on either yep. side as well. So the virtue of the people who believe the idea is not a reliable source for discerning if it's true or not. Yeah. The reliable strategy is whether or not it matches up with Scripture. And really, to be honest, since this conversation has uh, been going on within the church for so many centuries, a little humility saying, hey, there's probably not an easy answer mm-hmm. on this subject. It's probably a little more complicated than our what we have in mind. Mm-hmm. And so let's see which of the two is outshines the other as far as what the Scripture says. Any other thoughts, Blake, you were going to mention? Yeah, so uh, one thing that I wanted to say was we get a little, uh, to, to use a contemporary phrase, we get a little triggered by the word predestination. And for mm-hmm. some reason that word is inextricably linked to John Calvin, which is 
kind of confusing because he really, like I said, and I, and I will show briefly, was not really the guy who most articulated that position. But I think it's something we need to address as Christians because it's a biblical term. It's, a, it's something that we see in the scriptures. It's something that we have to therefore address. We can't just write it off and say, I'm not going to read Ephesians. <laughs> right. Because in Ephesians, he says in ver- chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's not stating an Augustinian or or Calvinistic or an Arminian position. That's just the Apostle Paul in Ephesians using this term. And it's just a compound word of a prefix of pre, meaning before, and destination, meaning there's a, a destination that was set beforehand. And obviously with humanity, you have two ultimate destinations, uh, the kingdom of God or the lake of fire. You have life, death. Um, so that's what the topic is dealing with. And to that historic point, some theologians have distinguished these three different basic types of theology of the Pelagianism, the semi-Pelagianism, and the Augustinianism. Uh, and that stems from, I believe it's a fourth century conflict, where the church had a lot of confrontations and different views, especially early on. During that time, you had a monk named Pelagius, I think it was a British monk, who was articulating, or at least this is what's been associated with him. Yeah, I, I think you have to be careful there. I've read elsewhere. His, his writings yeah. don't survive. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I think probably a caricature of him is what remains. But regardless, we'll use that as, as a term, yeah. Yeah, a term that we can think with. But uh, so there's the term Pelagianism, which has come to describe uh, the, the view that man, apart from God's grace, can be saved. Supposedly, Pelagius argued that man had the ability to morally, within himself morally, to perfectly live out the law and thereby be justified before God and would not need the grace of God. And I think that no one at this table is saying that the grace of God is not necessary for salvation. How we interpret it will be different, but the, necess- the fact that grace is a necessary uh, aspect of, of salvation is on the table. So then you come to the semi-Pelagianism view, which is a, that's a broad term, uh, which I think Arminianism and other, Wesley, like some of these other views would fall under that camp, which is that grace is necessary and man must cooperate with grace in some way. And there's varying degrees of what that is, whether it's one or 99 or 99% or 1%. That's the semi-view. And then the Augustinian view is that it's all grace, and that apart from the grace of God, man cannot be saved. There isn't an action that man must do. It's, it's all God. Uh, and then this later translates into Arminianism and Calvinism, which are later variations of those theological branches that obviously diverge and take their own growth. But basically, we're talking about it, the idea of monergism and synergism. That is, is Salvation monergistic, as in one, as in one-sided, God is doing something, or is it synergistic in that there is a cooperative aspect to salvation, God and man working together? So those are a lot of big words, a lot of big terms. But they're important if you're going to discuss this subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to know the terms. So if I say Augustinianism, Calvinism, monergism, that's all to refer to the same concept of predestination election, where Arminianism, semi-Pelagianism, synergism are all the other side of that discussion. But I think all of that is within the household of faith, where I think we could all agree the, the, the notion that man can be saved without grace whatsoever, that we don't need Jesus' sacrifice, uh, is not a Christian view. 
I think that's no, we can we can probably all rule that out. My notes on Pelagius from some time ago when I was looking into him were that a lot of it stemmed from his difference with Augustine on original sin. Mm-hmm. Pelagius held that when we're born, and we'll get into this next time yeah. when we talk about total depravity, Pelagius held that when we're born, we're neutral, just like Adam before the fall. We're born morally neutral. And then we're capable of doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. And that as Christians, God's grace assists us in every good work we do. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Augustine, it was we're born into original sin. Mm -hmm. And so we're guilty really from the womb and that we are not capable of choosing God. So God chooses us. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like a little bit more on that. I'm sure we'll get deeper oh, yeah. into it. But the church historian in me is, is uh, <laughs> nervous about all this because it's like, well, what are we basing this on? Just like the winning side of Augustine and what he says everything's really about. Right. But what, what are we going to do? Uh, yeah. Unless we find some archaeological discovery, uh, we just proceed as we can. Yeah. This definitely played itself out during the Reformation period as well. Oh, yeah. um, even before... John Calvin got going. Mm-hmm. You had Luther and Erasmus. Mm-hmm. And Martin Luther famously wrote a book called On the Bondage of the Will. And then uh, Desiderius Erasmus wrote a book in response to that. And uh, just fairly recently, a couple of years ago, John Piper and N.T. Wright were doing the same thing, writing books mm-hmm. at each other. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. uh, that's been 500 years of, of doing that. Yeah. And uh, I think what what I'm in particular excited about in this recording and and, and what we uh, are going to do here in this discussion is that so often the mudslinging and there's more heat than light Mm -hmm. in these conversations. And so I'm interested in you guys modeling for us constructive disagreement. And that is something that we don't have very many examples of, if we're if we're honest. Yeah. And no. uh, churches are not doing this. Nope. If you attend a, for example, a Methodist church or a Pentecostal church, and you want to hold to a strong Calvinistic perspective, you say, "Well, this is what I believe." They'll say, "Well, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> why don't you join the Reformed Church?" Yeah. And and. and Vice versa. Let's say you attend a Reformed church and you say to the elders, you say, hey, I've searched the scriptures and I've discovered that Calvinism is incorrect. It's an incorrect view and I don't hold to it anymore. The, the Reformed church would just say, well, what? first of all, you're wrong. <laughs> but, uh, uh, why don't you go to the Methodist church down the road or whatever? So what we do when we find doctrinal disagreement within our ranks is we just either kick somebody out, mm-hmm. force them to go back to what we believe, or we say, go to another church that believes like you. Mm-hmm. There's not really that discussion where mm-hmm. both sides are treated with respect mm-hmm. in, in many cases. I'm sure there are, there are some cases where that happens. And so that's what I'm looking forward to here is mm-hmm. to see how this discussion plays out. I want to learn, especially from you, Blake, how the Calvinist mind works, because that's not you know, where I've come from traditionally. Yeah. And uh, I'm very interested in hearing from you, Jacob, how you interact with Calvinism and how that all works out biblically. Yeah. So um, any other thoughts before we wrap this up? 
I just had a quick thing is, so the, the whole idea you mentioned reformed being the, like the reformed tradition, which typically is uh, differentiated from Lutheranism because after Luther, who was a strong Augustinian. He was an Augustinian monk. Yeah. After him, then uh, Philip Melanchthon comes along and switches the Lutheran over onto the Arminian side. So Lutheranism now falls on the opposite side of the issue where uh, Martin Luther fell, which is just kind of interesting how that switched around. But Reformed theology, which typically falls under the teachings of John Calvin and the Reformers, is so much more than just the five points of doctrines of grace yeah. regarding uh, the soteriological view, or the, that is the theology of salvation um, that Calvinists hold. Uh, it's, it's a much bigger system. And so to your point, like we're not going to get into all of that today uh, or in five weeks. Uh, Reformed theology is, is enormous, just like Catholic theology, just like Wesleyan theology. You, you know, to reduce it to five points is, is uh, inaccurate. But when people think of Calvinism, they think of the five points, the tulip, acrostic, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, which, interesting enough, as you guys probably know, was actually not made up by Calvin, but by Arminius and his remonstrance when they were disagreeing yeah. with the Reformed Church. And they said, here's these, how we would summarize the five points of your soteriology, and we disagree with the middle three. If I remember historically, they still affirm total depravity and perseverance, if I understand correctly. I think so. And then later generations, that changed. But I think the initial one, they, they had contention with the middle three. Um, but it's a useful acrostic, but acrostics can also become a little damaging, as we'll see. I think it's a really stimulating topic, and I'm really excited to talk about it with you guys. Again, in this mutual respect, but also you know, where we do have a disagreement, and we can both come to the scriptures uh, and say that. And I, and I will also say that if the Bible does in fact teach the Arminian view, or the open theistic view, or a universalist view, which I don't agree with any of those, but if it does teach that, I want to be subject to, to believe that. Because yeah. I've read authors on both sides who will yeah. say, well, if God is this way, I wouldn't believe in him. And I think that's unacceptable that's for wrong. us as Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And full disclosure, whichever one of you guys loses this debate, uh, you're kicked out of the church. So. Oh, good. So, you know, <laughs> <Awesome>. No pressure. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You're going to be down to worship leader. <laughs> I was going to say that'd be well, awkward down, for me. down to worship leaders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, that's about it for today. Uh, anything you wanted to add to that, Jacob? No, no, I'm good. I'm just uh, ready to get into this and um, see where the differences lie and highlight them. All right. So that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Well, I hope that whet your appetite for future episodes. We'll have a, a, a thorough and engaging discussion on total depravity starting next Thursday. But if you would like to weigh in on anything that was said in this episode, please come online to restitutio.org. It's like restitution with no N, restitutio.org. The idea there is that we want to restore authentic Christianity, get back to the original faith of the apostles of the Bible, and then find ways to live it out authentically in the 21st century. So if you could get on restitutio.org and find uh, number 137, Calvinism versus Arminianism, part one, introduction, you can leave a comment there and let us know what side of this debate you're starting from. That would be really cool to see where people are at I suspect a good number of you out there are on the Arminian side, but it'd be nice to hear from some Calvinists as well. Also, I've been getting in a couple of extended comments, some feedback. Jerry Weirwill's presentation on, on a new perspective reading of Galatians. Just to be fair, Jerry was not specifically responding to 
the previous episodes where Daniel Calcano was laying out his pro-Torah observance for Messianic Jews' point of view, but it did come up in this episode. So please don't take it as if it were intended to be a thorough refutation of what Calcano had said. Um, We may do a future episode on that. I think it could be a great debate as well. John Roftos writes, Thanks, Sean and Jerry, on the presentation around a new perspective on Galatians. This has been a wonderful shift for me in understanding and appreciating the Scriptures. Much of the tension that I thought existed between the Law and the New Covenant was really only in part because of the robust language Paul used in Galatians and elsewhere, and of the preconceived ideas coloring my understanding. I suspect the average 20th century Australian does not think, discuss, or understand matters of the law exactly like a first century Jewish person without a little help. I now see the relationship between the law and the new covenant as so much more sublime. How could it be anything else as the author of both is none other than the Father? Jerry has now sentenced me to reread this Christian scriptures, particularly Romans, Hebrews, Galatians, with my Jerry goggles on. Really, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Romans ten fifteen. This podcast was good things. Praise to the Father. Thank you, guys. Well, thanks so much for writing in, John. Appreciate that. And we also have a comment from Brian. He writes, well, Jerry certainly presented the new perspective on Paul. Also, I'm glad that this interview has been a blessing to some. At 40 minutes and 50 seconds in, Jerry states, Quote, while he, Paul, still observed the law in certain contexts, in other places he didn't, end quote. And then again in 4350, quote, and he also mentions in 1 Corinthians 9 that he was Torah observant at times when he was among the Jews in his effort to preach the gospel to them and for them to see the significance of the Christ event. But then he was not with the Jews when he was not Torah observant. So he catered to the circumstance of which he would make would make him the most effective minister, evangelist, and apostle for the Lord possible, end quote. While this interpretation is quite conventional, it has been and continues to be called into question. It is illogical. Was Paul a chameleon then, changing colors as he wished? Were first century Jews idiots? <laughs> so Paul would go to the synagogue loaded with Jews and be the most effective minister and evangelist and apostle for the Lord possible by being Torah observant and then go to a Gentile home next door and discard his Torah observance and the Jews at the synagogue he was just at didn't notice at all? This is a duplicitous Paul and does not line up with 2 Corinthians 4.2, not walking in craftiness, we don't use tricks, we do not use deception. Nor does this interpretation line up with Luke's historical portrait of of the Torah-observant Paul. Remember, Acts 21.21 is speaking about rumors, not things Paul actually did. Luke's Paul says, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. There are better ways to understand Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and the whole corpus of the Pauline writings and Hebrews, but it's superfluous to write them out here. Besides, I don't have a PhD or any graduate degrees in Pauline studies. I just read books. So what I have to contribute doesn't really matter. It can just be jettisoned because the majority of scholars don't hold this position, despite the fact that N.T. Wright comments in his magnum opus, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, on page 1445, quote, This so-called post-supersessionist position, however, is itself well on the way to becoming a new consensus, end quote. Perhaps we can work together to set up a follow-up interview with Mark Nanos later on this year, He has a new book of collected essays on Galatians coming out this September. You can get the book and read the essay or two and then maybe have him discuss them. 
Well, Brian, that was quite a spicy comment. I suppose we have a sharp disagreement on this particular subject, which is okay. You know, I respect you as a brother in Christ, and uh, even if you don't have degrees in Pauline studies, you do have God-given intelligence and a lot of it. Uh, So I certainly welcome your comments here, and I really am at a loss to see the problem with being respectful to people when you're around them. If I'm spending time with vegetarians, I would not eat a big piece of meat in front of them because I know that for whatever reason, they are abstaining from eating meat. Or if I'm around Jewish people, I'm not going to do certain things that I know would offend them. I I feel like this is just common sense respect and concern and love, not putting a stumbling block before someone else. In the early Christian movement that Paul was a huge part of, he would go to those synagogues, and he would preach to those people. I certainly don't think he would bring in a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich for breakfast and eat it in the synagogue, okay? That's obvious, because that would be offensive, and it would it would eliminate his opportunity to speak. So what does he do? He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And and so on. I, I know you're familiar with this text from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But this charge of being a hypocrite or a chameleon, I don't think sticks. I mean, Paul is very clear that he does not believe the law is something that needs to continue to be observed by Christians. That was one of the main points he made in Galatians, but he also makes it in Romans. He makes it, uh, he makes it in 1 Corinthians. He makes it in many of his writings. And then we find it also very strongly made by the author of Hebrews as well. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians 9 is a gospel-driven man. He is absolutely and unquestioningly committed to spreading the gospel, especially to his Jewish brothers and sisters, but also to the Gentiles. And so that's what he did. He went to the synagogue. He used whatever clout and reputation he had from his previous life as a Pharisee to speak to the folks there about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And those who responded, he would also then teach about New Covenant Christianity. Now, a lot of times, he did get kicked out of the synagogue. In fact, you look over and over again, he is constantly beaten and severely mistreated by his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's not just because he's saying, oh, there's a Messiah. He's saying something bigger than that. He's saying that the Gentiles are now part of Christianity. He's saying things like we read in Ephesians, that now this middle wall that had separated Jew and Gentile has been torn down in Christ. He's saying, like he said in Colossians, that the debt has been canceled and nailed to the cross, all these decrees that were were accusing people. And what he's saying was certainly something that was so offensive to Jewish sensibilities that they did physically assault him repeatedly. They followed him from city to city, and turned others against him with relative ease, and in one case, even stoned him. So we we know whatever he was preaching, it was deeply offensive to the Jews. 
this all to me, I mean, hey, I could I could be wrong, Brian. I, I know that you have worked on this material for a long time and have a, a lengthy list of scholars who agree with you. But it's just I, I would need to see some sort of um, some sort of reason to even consider the other side at this point, just because there's just such an overwhelming amount of evidence in Paul's epistles in the Book of Acts that he was not committed to Torah observance. And just like Jerry said in the episode, if Paul believed in Torah and then he wasn't practicing Torah when he was with the Gentiles, that would be hypocrisy. But if you didn't believe Torah was necessary, you can practice Torah observance if you want to or not. It's, I don't think it's hypocritical at all. It's what I would call freedom in Christ, the idea that you can participate or not. But uh, as it is right now, we're on this Calvinism series, and we need to focus on that. And then I've got a few other things already recorded and set to go, including a very good interview uh, from Kirk Walden on the subject of abortion from a Christian point of view, and some other stuff. But I would definitely like to return to this subject and see what we can set up as far as maybe a debate or a response to the position that you're defending here, which you call Paul within Judaism, PWJ. So anyhow, thanks so much for writing in, Brian. Uh, that's about all the time we have for today. I just want to read out one last comment by Sean. He comments further about the quote-unquote double version of Paul, that he is. he says that he finds it hypocritical to say one follows the Torah around some and not around others. I think anyone could pick up on that and call him out. And what in the world would Paul do if there was a group of Jew-Gentiles together? Well, Sean, I think that's exactly the scenario in Galatians. There, there was a group of Jew-Gentiles together in Antioch, and they had table fellowship. And it doesn't specifically say if the food was kosher or not, but it does say that when people from James came, that Paul confronted Peter because he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. So to me, that makes a, a pretty strong case that there was unclean food and that there was an issue from the strict Jewish Torah observance party to this new exciting form of Christianity that did not create barriers and identity walls between Jew and Gentile anymore, but recognize instead that in Christ these things were done away with, and that in Christ faith is what defines and identifies the people of God. So uh, Sean goes on to say, does he obey Torah or not? He wouldn't just be upfront about non-Torah advocacy. Like I quoted in the last one, why would Paul say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, if he didn't mean to walk as Jesus walked? Well, hold on right there. He did walk as Jesus walked. And that wasn't defined by Torah observance. It was defined by love. Jesus summarized the Torah by saying, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's precisely what Paul continued to do in his own life. Whether or not Paul continued to keep Shabbat or not, I, I think is like totally not within the scope of what this says when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If he's saying that to the mixed Jew and Gentile community that he's writing to, then what he's saying is that he wants all of the Gentiles to keep the law. And you, Sean, yourself don't believe that. I don't believe that. None of us believe that. So that can't be what he means here. 
He goes on, and that's right after the usual context of the support to double Paul, Jews versus Gentile versus. I think one of the major problems in Jesus' day and the religious leaders were additions to the Torah and other traditions which many Jews were entrenched into believing. So when it was brought up in the audio that, quote, Jews cannot fellowship with Gentiles, end quote, this was a traditional law, air quotes law, not Torah, despite Peter's claim in Acts 10 with regard to visiting Cornelius. There is no law in the Torah that states this to my knowledge. If there is, I'm open to hearing more. So God was constantly fighting the traditions of the religious leaders, as was Jesus, to bring them back to unadulterated Torah keeping from the heart. Hey, Sean, I think this is an excellent point here, and I was a little taken aback when Jerry made his strong stand that Torah observance included non-interaction with Gentiles. Also, to my knowledge, there is no such law in Torah about that. There is no commandment about non, non-participation non with Gentiles or not entering a Gentile's house or not eating with a Gentile. So long as the Gentiles were eating clean foods, then they could eat with the Jews. But maybe maybe Jerry knows something here that I don't, so we'll have to see what he says on that. So I thank you for that clarification. If anybody else wants to weigh in on that, I would appreciate it. I think you're right, though, the main issue that Jesus had with the Jews, I mean, there were a couple of main issues. One was hypocrisy. They were saying that they were observing the law, but they really weren't. And the other was Pharisaic, maybe we could call it Mishnaic, interpretations of the law. In other, word, in other words, the oral traditions, these fence laws that Jesus did not regard as authoritative. So that was certainly a lot of the interaction there. But once again, nobody disagrees that Jesus kept Torah. That's not really an important argument either way, because everyone agrees on that. The real question is, with the the culmination and climax of the Christ event, his whole life, but also his death, his resurrection, his ascension, does that ratify a new covenant? And yes, I realize that a new covenant does not necessarily obsolete the old covenant, but in Hebrews, we can read very clearly that when he specifies a new covenant, it makes the old covenant obsolete. It, it actually says that exact word, obsolete. So we do know that the new covenant does make the old covenant obsolete. And if the new covenant does not replace the old covenant or make the old covenant obsolete, then we are all under the old covenant, Jew and Gentile alike, because that's the only covenant there is. So there's a lot more I could say about this, but I've already gone on too long here. Thanks, everyone, for listening, if you've listened this far. And if you found this helpful, please share this episode with your friends. We really want to get a lot of people listening in to this debate so that they can both be informed of the other side, but also make their own decision on what they believe about salvation. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.